2: This is the Area 941 Radio Wolinsky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wolinsky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's BookWaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. This podcast was originally posted on May 13, 2016. J.G. Ballard, who died in 2009 at the age of 78, was one of the greatest of all british speculative fiction writers and one of the main authors of the period known as the british new wave in novels such as the crystal world and high rise and in short story collections like vermilion sands he dissected our present world through looking at disaster scenarios two of his novels became well-known films crash was directed in nineteen ninety six by david cronenberg And his fictionalized memoir, Empire of the Sun, was turned into a film by Steven Spielberg and introduced a young actor named Christian Bale. On May 8, 1988, the Probabilities crew, Lawrence Davidson, Richard A. Lupoff, and myself, had a chance to sit down with J.G. Ballard while he was on tour for his novel, The Day of Creation. It turned into a career retrospective.
3: Most of our interviews kind of start chronologically, and chronologically, your life kind of begins with the Empire of the Sun. How much does the novel, the Empire of, of the Sun, relate to your actual growing up? It's a novel, but I call it semi-autobiographical. It's partly, partly
0: based on my own life. I was the same age as the boy in the book, the same name, lived in the same street, went to the same school. I was born in Shanghai, nineteen thirty, and I was there when the Japanese invaded. China in 1937 and seized all of Shanghai except the international settlement. And I was there the day after Pearl Harbor when they seized the settlement itself and then began interning the Americans and British and allied nationals in various camps around the city. And I was in the camp that I describe in the book. But there's a very important difference, and that is that unlike the boy in the book and the film, I wasn't alone. My parents were with me in the camp. So many of the experiences in the book are based on first-hand experiences of my own, but many are invented. It is a novel, and, you know, one's trying to reach an imaginative truth. How did you feel about the movie? I was very impressed by it. I thought it a very powerful and uh, moving film. I thought it a Spielberg's best film to date, and certainly his most adult film to date, it was a very downbeat dark movie in many respects. I give more credit for not sentimentalizing the story and not taking any shortcuts. I had a lot of conversations on the set during the making of the film and I was impressed by his seriousness. He described to me how they planned to, or how he planned to film certain very difficult scenes in the book and he, he never, I mean he didn't shy away from any of the difficulties You face them head-on, and I thought the movie as a whole was tremendously good. Was that a real B-29 in the movie? I've got a feeling that that was a model. There are very few of these B-29s still flying around, and the bombing sequences were were all filmed in Spain. And I think the B-29 was a model, but I'm not sure about that. The Mustangs were real. They were flown by a group of ex-British Red Arrows, RAF aerobatic pilots, among them a father and son team.
3: When uh, you were watching the film, did the uh, camp look like the camp that you were in? Visually,
0: no, because they couldn't get into the actual camp in Shanghai. They filmed in Shanghai, and they wanted to film on the site of the old camp, which part of which still still exists next to the airfield, which is now a Chinese military base. Because the, the, the concrete buildings that made up part of the camp, and are still standing. Are now part of this military base. They wouldn't allow Spielberg to get onto it, so they decided to build a camp in Spain, which is a much smaller camp than ours. Our camp was pretty big. I mean, it was held about two thousand people. But what he did convey very well, I think, was the uh, the sort of at- the atmosphere in the camp. It had that look and that feel, even if the buildings weren't like them.
4: There was one scene in the novel Empire of the Sun, which also occurs in the film, which I've had trouble trying to understand whether this was your childhood fantasy or a reality of some peculiar sort, and that is seeing the flash of the Hiroshima bomb.
0: In fact, it was the Nagasaki bomb, which Nagasaki is a lot nearer, of course. It's about 400 miles away across, largely across open water. In the book, I leave it open, whether the boy has really seen the Nagasaki flash. Now in my camp, there were a number of people I remember who claimed to have seen the flash and thought, obviously thought they had done. Because we knew nothing of the uh, size of the atomic bombs that were dropped. Many people thought that they'd been dropped on Tokyo and that millions of people had been killed by them. So it's probable that no one really saw the flash. 400 miles is a long way. I think in the Nevada tests, well, carried out to this day, I believe, but certainly in the 60s and 70s, people could see the Nevada test flashes from a distance of about 40 or 50 miles. But those were, most, I imagine, at night. It's hard to, to believe that 400 miles, you know, that they could have seen the flash over 400 miles. I leave it open, and I think it's, it's really left open in the in the movie, too. There was a lot of bombing going on, and the, the skies were lit with
4: flashes from the B-29 raids, and people probably confused the two, and I leave it open. One other question about Empire of the Sun. You have a combination of civilian internees and prisoners of war more or less intermixed in the same camp. Was this historical? In my book, I don't. In my book, I it's an
0: all-civilian. I don't think there are any military personnel in the in the camp, in my book,
4: I didn't intend that. Well, perhaps I was confused. In the movie, they did mix military personnel there. And I was really startled when I saw that. In the book, I describe
0: a group of about 30 American merchant seamen. I describe them as merchant seamen who were in the camp. There was a group of about 30 American merchant seamen taken off an American liner. And uh, as far as I remember in the movie, Malkovich and, and the others the Americans in the camp, are intended to be uh, American civilians. I may be wrong there, but I I wasn't aware that they were meant to be military personnel. There weren't any military personnel in the Mm -hmm. camp.
1: You first went to Britain in 1946 and studied medicine at, I believe, King's College at Cambridge. You then discovered science fiction while uh, in Canada during your tour of duty for the RAF. I was a trainee pilot in the RAF, and
0: uh, in the mid-'50s, Canada's contribution to NATO was to do all the pilot training there. So we were a group of Turks, French at that time, Canadian, British, Danes, all in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, which is a pretty remote place. But, I mean, I, uh, it was a f- fine small town out in the you know, in the middle of nowhere. There was nothing much to read there because, of course... There were no national newspapers. and The local newspapers were simple, full of nothing but, you know, 20 pages of curling, <laughs> curling contests. Contained no international news whatever. So, I mean, even even something like Time magazine was regarded as, you know, wildly highbrow. It was difficult to get hold of that. So, I my eyes started drifting along the racks of magazines in the in the bus depot. And uh, I noticed these science fiction magazines, and I noticed that this was the heyday, of course, of the post-war SF boom. There was then something like, there must have been 20 to 30 American magazines, and at the time I think there was something like half a dozen British magazines. The stories were a lot less lurid than the covers of the magazines suggested. I mean, the covers would show, you know, half-naked women, you know, being seized by giant robots or tentacled creatures from outer space. Inside, there were these serious stories about the here and now. People nowadays, when they think of science fiction, they think of fantasy, which really dominates SF now. Then it was much more realistic in its approach. And writers of the time, Frederick Pohl, Theodore Sturgeon, Robert Sheckley, Bradbury, were writing about the world of the fifties and they were writing about change as it was taking place in the post-war world well you know increasingly dominated by advertising and TV by computers by the first jet travel and I thought this this literature has a rich potential it also shared something in common with surrealism which I admired tremendously I was interested in the way the surrealist tap, the unconscious and hidden forces that were in the landscape of our lives then well I you know I put two and two together and I, I thought well I, oh I wanted to become a writer when I went back to England I um, thought hard and decided to write science fiction which I did
1: After leaving Cambridge your first writing jobs were writing advertising copy and polishing movie scripts.
0: I did work for an advertising agency briefly. I remember I wrote one or two lemon juice commercials. (laughs) Uh, That seems a very, very long time ago. Then I worked for a small scientific film company called Film Surveys Limited that was run by a, a doctor in London. He made little science films for industry for the most part, and I helped to write scripts for these. I mean, they weren't film scripts in the feature film sense. I mean, there was no dramatic action it was it was like it was a form of technical writing really because I wrote you know the commentaries that would go with these science films which were films describing pieces of scientific equipment like a new x-ray machine or something of this kind where the commentary needs to be extremely specific and then I worked as a scientific journalist on a number of uh, science journals in London.
3: Your first story was, Prima Belladonna. Yes, I think that was the very first one I had
0: published in a Brit- to begin with I, I published in the British science fiction magazines because they were the ones that were on sale. I mean too many of the American magazines appeared erratically. I mean most of them seemed to come into the country wrapped around machinery and the British magazines they had regular publication dates and and of course it was a, a novice writer's dream to be able to write a story a month for a whole year if you wanted to. I mean I was writing something like 10 to 12 short stories a year for a lot, quite a long period between 90, I think I started in 56 I didn't publish my first novel until 62 or 63 so for something like 5 6 years I was just writing short stories and I wrote a tremendous number I must have written something like 50
4: was it possible to make a living doing that? Well, I
0: didn't... The British payments were so low. I mean, we were paid something like, well, I mean, a 5,000-word short story. A short short... Fairly short short story. Earned you something like £10, $15, which, you know, I mean, that was the average weekly wage for an industrial worker in Britain then. And the American magazines at the time, I think they paid two cents a word. That wasn't really very much more. I didn't try to make a living at it. And it wasn't until I... Wrote my first novel in '63, that I made the break, and since then I've I've supported myself entirely.
3: Your first four novels were all, I guess you'd call them disaster novels: Uh, "The Wind from Nowhere," "Drowned World," "Burning World," culminating in the incredible book, "The Crystal World." What were you doing?
0: I was having a hell of a lot of fun tearing the world (laughs) apart in every conceivable way. I was working in a very traditional British form, the disaster story, which hasn't been popular really with American writers to anything like the same extent. It's a very long tradition of British writers, going back, you know, to I mean, Robinson Crusoe. You can regard as a kind of disaster novel in its way. It's been very, very popular with British writers for reasons that you know people have speculated about. Is it the is it the bad weather? Is it the, the sense of the end of empire? Is it an expression of the class antagonisms in England. Nobody's quite certain, but it certainly is a very popular British form. It has great appeal for for a British writer, I think, the disaster story. What I did was to, to take the traditional disaster story and stand it on its head. I turned it inside out. Far from hating and fearing the disaster that was taking place, my characters embraced, they rushed towards the disaster and allowed it to engulf them because they they saw the particular disaster as the equivalent, almost, of the psychological changes taking place within their own minds. Uh, In a a book like The Drowned World, where London, uh, a future London, is submerged uh, by water from the melting ice caps, the landscape of London is beginning to go back to that which, the sun is more intense, and the landscape of London is beginning to go back to something that resembles the great Triassic swamps of 300 million years ago. And the central character fuels himself, drawn back into his own ancient biological past, literally moving down his own spinal column to a more simple and primitive world, but one which, of course threatens to dissolve him completely i mean when you return to the primeval soup you're one of the soup's ingredients you cease to have any identity of your own but he was willing to embrace this because he felt the external changes that were taking place in the landscape matched the internal changes taking place within his own psyche and this was true of the crystal world in the same way the hero there finds himself in a jeweled, crystallizing forest that seems to stand outside time. Time has stopped and everything has become a more intense and a more vivid version of itself. And all those disaster stories of mine are, are in a sense, about time, time past in the the case of the drowned world, time future in the case of the the burning world, or the drought as it was called in England, where the desert represents the future of the, the planet. And a world without time, or an indefinite, an in an infinite present, if you like, in the crystal world. And I was interested in the psychology of these landscapes.
3: The crystal world it bears a resemblance, in my mind, at least, to Ice Nine in Vonnegut. Had you read the Vonnegut by then, or? No, I haven't. I hadn't read it. When was that published? Uh, Cat's Cradle. Uh, I guess late fifties well, or early sixties. No, I hadn't read it. Actually,
0: haven't read it to this day.
3: Crystal World takes place in Africa, as does um, your latest novel, uh, Day of Creation. Had you been to Africa, had you lived in Africa?
0: I've been to Egypt, and I've seen the influence of the Nile on the Egyptian desert, which is not too far from where the Day of Creation is set. I've never been to Africa south of the Sahara, but I uh, describe uh, in the Day of Creation a an imaginary country, in fact, which lies roughly between the, you know, the Central African Republic, Bokassa's impoverished kingdom, and uh, Chad and the Sudan on the southern edges of the Sahara, which in the book is being overwhelmed by the southward advance of the desert. You know, the, seeing the Nile and the effects of water on the on the desert probably gave me the inspiration for this new book,
3: Crystal World is also about a journey up a river. Was it intentional to have the two stories kind of take opposite tacks, in one, the world is being created, in the other, the world's being destroyed? It it almost feels like the same river in certain respects.
0: Yes, well, I suppose it's a river that flows out of my own head. I wasn't really thinking of The Crystal World, which I wrote a very, very long time ago and haven't read since I wrote it nearly 25 years ago. A river is such an archetypal, element in our imaginations, I mean, along with mountains, deserts, jungles, beaches. I mean, these are the sea, these are great mythic entities that have, you know, run through the human imagination for thousands of years, and myths involving rivers have continued to touch the human imagination since the earliest days. I mean, in my case, of course, my the central character, the hero of the book, actually creates the river that he sails up. The river is his own invention, even to the extent that he believes that the river is, is flowing out of his own head in some way, that it's part of his own bloodstream. He's convinced, for example, that he can't drown in this river because it is part of his own bloodstream. So it's a very special
4: kind of voyage. If one takes The Day of Creation literally, it is a science fiction novel about this giant uh, aquifer beneath the continent of Africa and and the impact of gaining access to the water. How would you feel about a reader placing that kind of matrix on the book, and how do you feel about it?
0: Well, I wouldn't really see it myself as a science fiction story because it's so much within the realms of the everyday. Soon after the book came out in England, someone someone told me there that they'd seen a documentary about some Russians in a helicopter searching a desert waste in eastern Siberia for a river that was reported to have sprung into existence. And new rivers are constantly appearing on this on the surface of the planet. The Huang He, one of the one of the three greatest rivers in China, changed its course. I think sometime in the 1920s. And now exits from the sea somewhere, something like three or four hundred miles south of its original exit point. So there's nothing in any way far-fetched about the idea of a new river appearing. So the book can be taken literally as a as, as a realistic story. I, I mean, I don't mind the uh, science fiction perspective. I mean, the real story is about the relationship between the the hero, this young. British doctor who thinks he's invented the river and and this great and the Great Waterway itself. It's a psychological story of a man's quest for whatever reality lies inside his own head.
3: I'd like to go back a few years to the days of I guess New Worlds and Michael Moorcock. How did you meet up with Mike Moorcock and become the leading proponent in many ways of what is considered the new wave of science fiction?
0: Moorcock and I both independently were writing for New Worlds when it was edited by its founder editor, Ted Carnell, who in the 50s published most of the British writers for the first time Moorcock, myself, Brian Alderson, and John Brunner, and a number of others. And I met Michael Moorcock, I think, in 1961 or 62 when Carnell was about to give up his editorship. Mike Moorcock and I became very close friends, and we shared a lot of ideas in common about the future direction of science fiction. We felt that, and I, I strongly felt this ever since I began writing in, in 1956, that the science fiction of the 40s and 50s had exhausted its its potential. that It was already beginning to imitate itself, and that its ideas had begun to fossilize a little. I'd noticed this when I moved from the comparative freedom of subject matter that I found when I was writing for the British magazines and tried to sell my stories to the American magazines. I, I soon noticed that the stories of mine, including many that have been endlessly anthologized by American editors, stories like The Terminal Beach and various others, which don't seem in the least uh, revolutionary now, were rejected by American editors. And I noticed, for example, that you know even setting a story in the present day made the American editors nervous, because the conventions were that you set your story in the future. The conventions were that you set your story, if possible, on an alien planet or on a future Earth that was virtually an alien planet. And to write realistically about the impact of science and technology on the present day was something that, that, you know, that invited rejection. And it's interesting that Bradbury, Ray Bradbury, probably, you know, one of the greatest short story writers of this century, did not publish all that many short stories in the SF magazines. And, of course, a lot of his fiction was set in the present day or the near present day. So anyway, Moorcock and I felt that the conventions of SF, uh, of American SF, had largely been exhausted, and it was becoming too self-referential. SF was becoming a closed world, what I called a ghetto, where only somebody with a considerable familiarity with SF would be able to un- was able to understand the stories. We wanted a much more speculative kind of fiction about the present day, using something of the, you know, the freedoms that avant-garde mainstream writers had and then just by chance moorcock was offered the editorship of new worlds in i think 1964 and we were rapidly able to put into practice all that we believed this coincided of course with the swinging 60s in london in particular when experiment and innovation were you know the order of the day and new worlds of course enjoyed a tremendous It transformed itself rapidly from a science fiction magazine into something much closer to an avant-garde literary magazine. A change, incidentally, which I rather regret. I think that was a mistake in part, though Moorcock was a great editor, there was no question about that. He was uh, you know, one of the greatest British magazine editors in any field, and I think at the in its heyday, in the years of his editorship, between roughly 1964 and, let's say, 1970, New Worlds was the most exciting literary magazine of any kind in England and published you know some remarkable things.
3: Why do you think, even though to some degree the new wave trickled over to America and the concept of uh, science fiction as purely speculative, both in terms of, of content and form, didn't really... Uh, catch on in the United States.
0: I hadn't any first-hand experience of why the American readers, editors, and writers prefer to move away in a different direction. I mean, what happened was that, I mean, American science fiction in the 60s and 70s moved away really in the direction of escapist fantasy. British science fiction became, if you like, more realistic uh, but American science fiction went in the opposite direction. Whether that had anything to do with the Vietnam War or later with the, the Nixon presidency, I'm only speculating. I have no idea, but it may be that Americans had had enough of reality and wanted sheer escapism. The background, the traditions of American SF have always been very, very different from the British ones. I mean, in Britain, science fiction has, has been a, a part of a long, very long tradition of imaginative fiction, going back to Dean Swift's Gulliver's Travels through the 19th century, Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, then, of course, Wells, the greatest science fiction writer there has ever been, and then on to two of the greatest novels of the 20th century, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley and and Orwell's 1984. So the British writer is writing out of that tradition, and it's surprising the number of so-called mainstream British writers in the past 150 years who have written science fiction. We don't think of Kipling as an SF writer, but he has written what is without any doubt science fiction. And this is true of the most unlikely figures. And we see it today, for example, with people like Anthony Burgess, Kingsley Amis. These are British writers who are really thought of as mainstream writers only. Doris Lessing, another mainstream writer, who's actually written more science fiction novels than I have. She's written something like seven now, but no one would think of her as a a science fiction writer. That tradition of using science fiction to write a cautionary tale or an allegory or what have you is very long established in England. I think here the tradition is different. Here science fiction began really in the 20s as a form of popular entertainment. It rapidly expanded in the 30s and 40s. It's really always been a mass-market popular entertainment medium with great strength. I mean, it's attracted, by and large, the American science fiction writers, who are my contemporaries in the 50s, let's say 50s and 60s, were far, far better writers than than their British counterparts. There's no question about that. The American writers of that day brought tremendous talent and skill and professionalism that, I mean, they were far better writers than than most mainstream writers. I mean, most mainstream writers are unable to tell a short story in the way that the best of the Americans, Bradbury, Pole, Cornbloss, and so on, Sturgeon, could do. But British and American science fiction, they've always been separate. They came together briefly in the 50s and 60s, but then I think they separated again. The creation of the new wave in England, I think, marked the point at which British and American SF made their
4: separation. There are several authors that you have either commented on in the past in print or that other critics have compared you to. And I, I would like to throw a few names out and ask you to comment. Two in particular are John Wyndham and William Burroughs.
0: Well, Wyndham is the uh, sort of quintessential British disaster story writer who wrote a famous novel, of course, The uh, Day of the Triffids. I mean, people have said that what I did was to, in, in my early novels like The Drama World or The Crystal World, was to take the sort of John Wyndham-style disaster novel and stand it on its head. I never thought of myself as doing that. I mean, I, I quite, I, you know, I enjoyed The Day of the Triffids when it first came out. I met him a couple of times, and, you know, you know he was a charming professional writer. I don't think he took what he did all that seriously. And, you know, all credit to him. He wrote, you know, one, the film, that, you know, called The Midwitch Cuckoos. is, uh, I think, a much better film than, you know, The Day of the Triffids. He's a good science fiction writer. But Burroughs, William Burroughs, of course, is a, I think is a genius. Uh, he, I think he's the most important and revolutionary American writer to have, you know, appeared since the Second World War you know, literary historians looking back will assign him a much more important place than he, he receives at the present. But I think even now he's seen as an important figure. Well-known writers in the mainstream, you know, one doesn't need to name too many names, I'm convinced will be utterly forgotten in a few years of their deaths. Burroughs will remain. I mean, he is an apocalyptic writer a powerful imagination that has engaged and responded to all the key events that are going on in the post-war world. I mean, he's he has unerringly picked on the great psychological dramas that unfold in the realm of politics, medicine, and so on. The paranoia of the uh, present-day political landscape, which you saw very much in, say, the closing years of the Nixon presidency. I mean, Nixon in his White House bunker in the last years, in the post-Watergate years, was rather like a, a William Burroughs character. And so many of today's headlines do resemble you know, Burroughs' chapter headings of 15 to 20 years ago. I, I regard him as a major, one of the most important 20th century writers.
3: You published a collection called the Atrocity Exhibition, which was eventually came out in America as Love and Napalm Export USA. These were short stories that were almost condensed novels. What were you doing?
0: I called them condensed novels at the time. What I meant by that was that they were conventional novels, if you like, with the unimportant bits left out. I, all that he said and she said, and I opened the door, and she looked out of the window. All that connective material which you have in a conventional narrative merely to move your characters around the the dramatic space, uh, which is largely irrelevant, I left out. I just put in the key moments so that I was able to reduce what would have been a full-length narrative of, say, 50,000, 60,000 words down to 5,000 words. The idea was that this would make life a lot easier for the reader. I'm not sure if that really was the case. I think it made life a lot tougher for the reader. By eliminating all the the connective tissue, I was able to bring about what seemed to be a lot of mysterious, powerful connections. I feel those stories, those condensed novels that made up the atrocity exhibition, written roughly between 1965 and 1970, catch something of the feel on the sort of dynamics of what is really going on in the world today, the sort of sense that ordinary reality is is being invaded by what I call the media landscape, by politics, conducted as the branch of advertising. By advertising, a huge multiplication of fictions of every kind in the landscape of our lives, which invade our heads and threaten our whole sense of where reality begins and, you know, and fantasy ends, something that's difficult to do. That, that sort of that hot mix is something very difficult to achieve in a conventional, realistic narrative.
3: But had you read any Borges?
0: Yes, I've read him.
3: The reason I mention it is because, to some degree, he does something similar.
4: Maybe that that's true, but I think his approach is rather different. There's a story about one of your books. It may be the Atrocity Exhibition. I, I would like you to pin it down, that an entire edition was suppressed because a high executive in the publishing company saw the book at the last moment and was horrified. Would you, would you give us the true version of that?
0: Yes, the book The Atrocity Exhibition was made up of these pieces that I was writing in Michael Moorcock's New Worlds and various other similar magazines in the late 60s and I got to know a, uh, an editor at then working for Doubleday called Larry Ashmead And he suggested to me that I might like to publish them in book form. I agreed, and he commissioned some fine illustrations from a a British artist who's now very well known as a children's illustrator, Michael Foreman. And the book was in due course published by Doubleday under the title The Atrocity Exhibition. I gather that something like every Thursday in the Doubleday building Some lad is given the job of wheeling around a trolley loaded with the latest Doubleday books. And uh, Nelson Doubleday was apparently in his office one lunch hour and uh, picked up the atrocity exhibition. Leafing through it, saw the title of the short story about Ronald Reagan. Larry Ashmead, who'd commissioned the book, was out to lunch carrying a few copies which he planned to send to reviewers and myself and when he got back from lunch the order had gone out to pulp the entire edition so only a few something like half a dozen copies of the book still survive of which i have one anyway the book was subsequently published by grove press under a title which i is it is the title of one of the pieces in the book which, which i thought was the wrong title but uh, Love and Napalm Export USA struck me as the wrong title for the book. That's the story.
4: It's a wonderful story. I wish I had a copy of that. <laughs> Do you know what they're worth these days?
0: The last time I saw a price quoted, which was, uh, was about 10 years ago, they were then going a single copy cost something like $1,000. And I dare say the price is higher now, which is more than I, of course, received as an advance <laughs> for the book itself. But I was philosophical about that.
1: I'd like to backtrack a little bit. Uh, You mentioned your earlier stories were published by uh, John Cornell. What was he like as an editor? Did he give you any feedback? Uh, Just how you felt about writing for him.
0: I thought he was a great editor. He uh, was tremendously encouraging to me, and he published all my early fiction. By the time Moorcock took over in something like 1964, by that time I had been published by Carnell, something like seven or eight years, and had written the equivalent of four or five volumes of short stories, I should think, in that time. And he gave me complete freedom. He never once turned down a story of mine. And he suggested remarkably few changes in that period, scarcely any at all. He very much wanted to reach a wider audience, because the the science fiction readership in England was too small, really, to sustain the magazines. And he wanted to appeal to a wider mainstream readership. And to do so, he needed to publish the kind of stories that didn't require the sort of specialized knowledge of SF that the, American's mag- the American magazines required. It so happened that my more open approach, I mean, I also wanted to get away from the what I saw as the fossilizing conventions of 50s SF, which meant that, of course, I'd met the right editor, bearing in mind that he was working by and large with writers who were not nearly as good as their American counterparts. He did a remarkably good job. He offered, you know, a house room to most of the leading British writers of the time. They cut their teeth and learned their trade. Morcoff, Aldous, myself, Brunner and others, were all published
3: there. After your period with New Worlds, you continued to write disaster novels of a different sort, Concrete Island and High Rise. You were moving away from science fiction but maintaining the disaster tradition.
0: Yes, the novels I then wrote, Crash, Concrete Island, High Rise, all written in the early and mid-'70s, were, again, disaster stories. They were urban disaster stories in which I looked at the urban landscape of high rises, the modern highway system in the case of crash and and in the case of Concrete Island. And I was interested in the way in which modern technology, as it appeared within the our landscape, the urban landscape, was playing into the worst side of the human imagination. Already the first, you know, big post war tower blocks were being you know, vandalized by the people living in them. Already urban planners had realized that, you know, modern highway systems which they'd built after the war or these great modern urban housing projects which they'd built after the war, were proving a social disaster, you know, that people simply wouldn't live in these big blocks except at an enormous psychological cost. I think the first of these great blocks were these big municipal high-rise complexes were being demolished simply because they weren't viable structures. And I was very interested in the way that that modern technology had created the possibilities of, you know, a new kind of hell. But it was a a, a hell that some people clearly enjoyed living in because not everybody, people might vandalize these blocks, but they had a good time doing so. (laughs) People were fascinated by particularly as they watched TV, they were fascinated by scenes of horrific violence, which, of course, didn't touch them. at their nerve endings, they could sit, you know, eating their suppers in their living rooms while watching newsreels of wars, in civil wars in the Congo or the Vietnam War, completely immune from any threat to themselves. And I was interested in the sort of all that was going on. Those three novels in particular were attempts to identify the peculiar psychology at work in this landscape of,
4: of violence. If we could change the subject a little, I would like you to tell us something about your actual working methods.
0: Well, I've always tried to be as disciplined as I could. This is common among all professional writers. I don't know any, any, any one of them who relies solely on inspiration. I think the poet can do that. But I think if you're going to be a a professional writer, and I don't just mean make a living at it, but I mean reach the fullest resources of your own imagination. You've got to be systematic about it. You know, rain or shine, I sit down at my desk for a couple of hours before lunch and a couple of hours after lunch. Whether I have anything, you know, on, the, on my head up display or not, I sit there and think over ideas. If I am actually writing, I, I try to do a somewhere between 800 and 1,000 words a day. And uh, I write in longhand. The editing functions of longhand are markedly superior to those of the word processor. Then type out the final thing myself. It's a little cottage industry. It seems to work.
4: Do you outline extensively?
0: Yes, I always do a detailed synopsis. In the case of a short story, it would probably be about a page. In the case of a novel, it might be anything from... 25 pages to, really, a a 25,000-word outline. And in the case of one novel I wrote, The Unlimited Dream Company, the synopsis was actually longer than the final book. It was something like 80,000 words. And by a synopsis, I don't mean a rough first draft. I mean a a narrative text with uh, all the dialogue, if any, in reported speech, a strict synopsis. And I was actually cutting down the synopsis as I wrote the novel. It was a peculiar way of going about it. But it's very important for me to, that the story have a dramatic shape that engages the reader's imagination. It's an old-fashioned view, or seems to be, though I don't think it is myself. I think it's very important to engage the reader's mind dramatically. And I believe in the virtues of old-fashioned storytelling. I, I'm a- absolutely opposed to the so-called postmodernist novel, with it's, but, uh, you know, explicitly declares the fictional nature of of the text the reader is reading, where you know, little dear reader, uh, <laughs> tricks are being played all the time, and where no attempt is made to present the events as a dramatically independent, you know, universe. I detest that sort of fiction. I think it's a dead end and a betrayal of, I mean, it betrays the fact that the writer has nothing new to say and no sort of moral compulsion to say it. So the synopsis plays that important part for me of, of making clear to myself before I
4: start writing that I have a strong story that engages the reader. There's something which strikes me as possibly paradoxical that I'd like you to comment. There's generally regarded uh, in your works a a rather somber and pessimistic tone, and yet I I think I detect a great deal of humor, perhaps sly and perhaps hidden in there, and yet very much present. Would you comment on that?
0: Yes. I mean, a lot of people have said that my writing is uh, rather pessimistic and gloomy. In my ordinary life, I don't think I am either of those things. I maintain a cheerful disposition in the face of, you know, having to wait at least 10 minutes for the next whiskey and soda. I don't have a pessimistic outlook in my own life. I brought up my three children myself, and I imbued them, with, I think, with a very confident attitude towards the world, which I wouldn't have done had I been a gloomy pessimist. I think that if you're writing in the cautionary mode, which is basically what all science fiction writers are, you cannot help but appear to be Little dark and wary. The science fiction writer is is in the position of somebody who is putting up a road sign saying, dangerous bends ahead. That doesn't make him a pessimist. Nobody puts up a road sign saying, you know, sometimes they do, beautiful scenic view. It's the warning signs that we see along highways for our own safety, and the, the science fiction writer writing in a cautionary mode does tend to stress the, uh, if you like, the negative aspects. I think in my writing there is a lot of humor, but it's of a very deadpan kind. I think if the reader is prepared to look for it, a lot of that ironic deadpan humor is present.
3: One final question. Day of Creation recently came out. Uh, Do you have anything in the works for after that?
0: I've got an idea that is circling around inside my head like a fly, but it hasn't yet come to rest, and uh, so I can't really say that I've got anything solid yet.
2: After the interview was recorded, Ballard went on to write seven more novels before he died in 2009. An autobiography, Miracles of Life, was published in 2008. My co-interviewers were Lawrence Davidson and Richard A. Lupoff. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.